What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sports Kingdom Show. I am your host, Eric, the Duke of Sports Sklar. I am joined by my co-host, the one and only Mr. 360, Tyler Pacholke, and, of course, co-host, producer extraordinaire, Jacob Gonzalez. Before we start the show, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you decide to listen to the Sports Kingdom Show so you can stay up to date on the newest episodes of the show. Don't forget to follow at TSK Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow all of us as well at The Duke of Sports, at Tyler Pacholke, and at Jacob Double Underscore Gonzalez. On this episode of the Sports Kingdom Show, Jacob and I are in studio, and Tyler will be joining us via the phone. We are going to discuss how close we are to having live sports back here in the United States and what the major sports leagues are doing to try to either resume or start their seasons as we are still dealing with the effects of the coronavirus. We are also going to recap the 7th and 8th episodes of The Last Dance documentary focusing on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. All right, let's start the show. Jacob, Tyler, how we doing, guys? It's riding, it's riding the wave, taking these up, you know, taking these updates one day at a time. That's all you can do, I really think, you know. Yeah, it sounds like LA is going to be shut down for another another three months. Yeah, it's pretty rough, but I think by shut down it means like all the regulations and stuff like that. They're still going to be here for another three months. Yeah, they're just going to slowly pull them back. It's it, it's not going to be as yeah, quick, yeah, yeah. as no, quick as people no. think. Yeah, no, every, everybody stay at home hoped. order is not you know yeah, it's stay at home order. So everybody hoped by May fifteenth that we could go back to normal, but I don't think that's going to happen. No, I knew it wasn't going to happen. There's no way. But, yeah, too big of a city. Yeah, it's just too many people. That means no more haircuts again, and I'm gonna have to. I'm just gonna have to shave it all off. I would love to Girl, see dread. that. I've only done, I've done it. I've done it once. I've actually been growing out the top, but I've only shaved it once to a one, and I'll never go back to that. Oh man, Tyler, yeah. you said you want you dreadlocks. No, I was saying, I was saying Jacob needs dreadlocks. I could see it. Oh, oh you could God. see it. That'd be funny. That just would be hilarious. Grow, I want to braid it. To be honest with you. You get your there hair braided? Yeah, if I grew it out enough, I would just braid it. Just start screwing with there it. There yeah. go for it. This, this is the time. Yeah, it's time to experiment. I'm surprised you haven't thought about dyeing it yet. Ooh, I should do blonde, like uh, early 2000s, like Backstreet Boys kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Yeah, frost, frost just, tips. Yeah, the frost tips. I was about to say that. Yeah, frost <laughs> tips. All right. Well, enough about Jacob's hair. Let's uh let's get into some sports without sports because there's still no live sports. I know UFC 249 happened. I just didn't get a chance to watch it because I had to work. Tyler, did you watch it? I did not. No, no. So none of us were able to catch it. Yeah, I just saw the highlights, which everybody was wearing yeah, masks was, for the most part on the like out on hey, the outer uh, I, the octagon. I actually I was actually bummed that I wasn't paying close up attention and I missed Greg Hardy's fight. And I typically tune into. I think I've seen every 
every one of his UFC fights today. But uh, I missed that one, and I was more just bummed because Ferguson and Khabib didn't happen, so it was just kind of, you know, it just was the excitement wasn't there. Yeah, no, I feel you. But all right, another uh, item from the NFL. They had their schedule release. They're hoping to start their season on time, but they announced that they would be extending their virtual offseason till at least the end of May. That means players can't go to the practice facilities, coaches can't go to the practice facilities, all of that. Everything's got to be done virtually. Do you think them extending the virtual offseason now until the end of May has an effect on them starting the season on time? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just going to start getting jam-packed. You're going to start pushing stuff together. and It, it may end up starting on time, but it's going to affect it in some regards. Maybe maybe a spike in injuries. Maybe just, you know, teams not looking sharp. There'll be some sort of residual result, um, but I don't know if it's necessarily a threat to not open on time. Which uh, you heard the news about Arizona opening up sports, essentially. And Florida said and that they were opening up to all professional sports teams, no matter if they're from Florida or not. Yeah, see, I want to see how this is going to fare to the rest of the league because we talked about this a couple weeks ago as far as is it fair, essentially. I know that you have to follow your state officials, and it is a state-by-state kind of basis that they're uh, opening up everything. But is it going to be fair for the other states as far as California states, New York, because these states are in the heap of, of, of the shit right now, and you have no choice but to stay closed. And places like Arizona and Florida now now have, I guess, the, the green light to go ahead and return to practice facilities and continue. But does this move the rest of the states in that position as well? Because you have to make yeah, it fair. Could... You have to make it fair in, in some sense. If you're going to reopen one sport per, per state, if we're talking about Arizona and Florida, and places like California, who NBA-wise have five teams, um, and um, no, no, they have four. They have four California teams. has four. Yeah, Texas has California three. California has four. And baseball has a couple. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So these these um, major league sports, they have multiple teams in these bigger states that have been hit the hardest. So those those states are not going to be open for a while. So how how do you make it fair if you're any of these commissioners? Well, okay, so let let's transition a little bit to talking specifically about the MLB because the MLB owners came out with a plan that they've proposed to the players association that kind of somewhat answers Jacob's question uh, as part of this proposal. So first off, part of the proposal is an expansion of the playoff teams in the MLB for the MLB playoffs from 10 teams to 14 teams. It would be an 82-game season, which is about half of what the normal regular season would be. Now, the next part is where I say it kind of somewhat answers Jacob's question. The use of home stadiums in areas that have local and state government approval would be used. Teams that don't have government approval would be moved to a state that does. So the MLB owners are saying in their proposal that let's say the California teams can't play in their home stadiums because their state and local governments aren't letting them, they would be moved to a state that is allowing them, and that's where they would play their games. Now, also a part of this proposal that the MLB owners had 
come up with is a so-called spring training 2.0 that begins in June with the season set for an early July start. And basically July 4th weekend would be the opening day target date. Which that would be great. Yeah, it would be perfect. I'm just being honest here. That that would be the most... uh, that would be the best thing of the year so far, starting what, it on July 4th. What's more American than having Baseball. opening day mm-hmm. on July 4th after America has gone through this pandemic, the rest of the world has gone through this pandemic, baseball being America's national pastime, yeah. July 4th weekend opening day would be the perfect target date for opening day. That would be so uplifting for everybody, sports fans, non-sports fans. I think overall that's a really good proposal. I mean, you hit on a lot. Well, there's more, Tyler. You, you touched on a lot of points, but so far what you said I think is like a really good proposal as far as the MLB goes. Yeah. Now, they're also saying the owners are proposing that there would be a universal designated hitter, which I know a lot of people are trying to get approved basically for the rest of history. Uh, I know people want to get rid of the DH in baseball. Also, a part of the proposal is there would be geographical schedules in which teams play only in-division opponents and interleague opponents in a similar area, i.e. an American League Central team would play the AL Central and the NL Central League teams. So there would be three divisions, 10 teams in each uh, of these divisions, and then 30-man roster with a taxi squad that would have upward of 50 players available. So baseball, they already have big rosters, but they would be making them even bigger to accommodate for potential injuries given all this time off. and Or t- even if somebody gets sick, too. Yeah, but now I want to stress this. This proposal was made by the owners, and in an article from ESPN talking about this proposal. Uh, I want to read this quote and there's a lot of concerns being voiced by the ML, the MLB players association. So I want to read this quote from the article. It says, quote, money is at the heart of the return. Sources said owners fearful of deep financial losses with fan free stadiums agreed in a conference call Monday afternoon to a plan that includes a 50, 50 revenue split with the players sources told ESPN Because MLB is the lone uncapped team sport in the United States, never has a straight revenue split been part of the game's finances. The MLBPA is almost certain to reject that element of the proposal and and counter that a March agreement between the parties guaranteed players a prorated portion of their salaries depending on the number of games played. The ability to, to strike a financial deal could mean the difference between a baseball season and one that is canceled. So the, the Players Association feels that this is exactly what a salary cap is, and the MLB doesn't have a salary cap right now, and they feel that the owners are trying to take advantage of a global health crisis to impose a salary cap when they haven't been able to do that in the past when CBA negotiations have taken place between the league and the players association. Now pro football talk, which is a great football site chimed in on this on Twitter and the pro football talk account tweeted quote, it will be interesting to see who in the media pressures the millionaire baseball players to accept 50% of all revenue in the name of helping Americans, but never pressures the billionaire owners to take less than 50% under the same exact argument. Now, 
we pulled some sound from Jeff Passan on Get Up this morning with Mike Greenberg, and I want you guys to listen to this. So, Jacob, why don't you hit it? Okay, let's go side by side. The alternative for the players, they do not get paid this year. They lose a very valuable year of their careers, which are finite. And when you have an average career, four or five, somewhere in that range years, one year means an awful lot. They go into a free agent market this offseason that is not just depressed, Greeny. It is practically non-existent because there's no revenue that came into the clubs the year before. And they don't want to go spend on players. They're looking to cut as much as possible. On the owner side, uh, zero revenue coming in at all. No revenue from uh, television local. No revenue from uh, national television. And when you have no revenue, there are going to be some franchises that because of how leveraged they are financially, could be looking at bankruptcy. If there's any bankruptcies in baseball, MLB has to bail those teams out and they have to go and sell those teams and franchise values go down. This is all financial rigmarole, I understand, and I'm focusing this around the money. The big part, Greeny, is if you can't get a season off the ground because of money, what does that say about baseball going forward? What does that say about the sport that in the middle of a pandemic, they were so intransigent that they couldn't figure this out for the sake of the fans and the people who need baseball. That, to me, is the biggest issue and the biggest reason that a deal gets done when yeah, it's all said and I done. agree with you. Now, obviously, that's the money concern side of it. But the other big concern for players that have not been addressed or that has not been addressed yet and not even discussed between owners and players for this proposal made by the owners are health precautions and protections being taken by the league to protect the players, family members, staff and stadium workers from testing positive and what would happen if someone were to test positive because we don't have a vaccine yet for the coronavirus. We don't have a legitimate, trusted treatment that we know is universal that works for everybody. No, and the the only tool that you really have is just the social distancing and the wearing of masks. They're all really just precautions, but they're not powerful tools to fight against it. Um, But I think to a point that you're saying is that, yes, what about the families? Because if, like I said earlier, if one of these players do test positive— where are you going to quarantine them? Because I don't, you've, we've all heard stories about nurses and stuff. They've had to like almost live in like their garages and, and isolate themselves from their families because they don't want to put their families at risk. Essentially, this would be the same issue with these players. If they do contract this virus or test positive, then they're putting their families at risk. Right. So, Tyler, you were saying that you loved what you were hearing from this proposal. Now, after hearing what the concerns were from the MLB Players Association and the fact that, honestly, the owners didn't consult the players on this proposal. They didn't really take into any consideration what the players wanted, and the players are the ones that are going to be risking their lives by going and traveling to these cities and playing out on the field. And really, these owners and front office executives, they don't really have to be on the front lines of this in this aspect. What what do you think of that? Oh, I mean, I think that like from the uh, from just like an operational standpoint, that if you're going to open the league, uh, that proposal is a good proposal. From an operational standpoint, now obviously, like I didn't know the financial uh, side of it, and obviously that's just kind of a constant 
fight in sports in general. I mean, yeah, the classic the billionaires are, versus millionaires. Yeah, so it's like, on one hand, it is. It's like it's just a. I guess I'm just not surprised. You know, I, on one hand, it's wrong. On the other hand, I'm just not surprised that the owners are trying to, you know, kind of pull this kind of thing. And, you know, like, it's tough because he was right. I mean, one year for a baseball player can mean the difference between making it and not making it. And if you're in your prime, you don't want to waste those prime years in the free agent market. And, you know, uh, owners being afraid to spend their money because they didn't get any revenue. That's those are all real, like, kind of threats. So I know that the players are going to be pressured into kind of getting on the field to play just to get that money, but they're not going to get what they deserve, I guess, is the ultimate point. I think that it's going to be a good – if they're able to, like, pull this off, it'll be a good little, like, 82-game season, all the logic behind it's nice. But ultimately, I think they'll they'll end up playing and the players will get screwed because ultimately I think it's a bigger loss for the – players not to not to play for a season than the owners for sure yeah yeah that, that, one, that, I mean, yeah, that one's a no-brainer it, yeah it just it sucks it's it's not it's this is a terrible dynamic to and you know borderline unethical for the owners you know to kind of come off this pandemic and do stuff like this but it's the power play that they have and it's a it's an old one yeah no it's it's just it was great when we first heard like the initial news. It's like, all right, the owners have this proposal. They're they're going to send it to the players. We're we're close to getting baseball, but then it's like, the players got the proposal and they raised all these concerns. And it's like, wait a second, the players are right about this. Yeah, because as an owner and the executives, all they do is make the decisions. Rightfully, yeah, that's tough because sometimes the decisions are some pretty hard ones. But once they once they made this proposal and the players saw it, it's like they're the ones who are going to be affected by it in the end, not the executives and not the owners. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. But ultimately, the players just don't have as much power, so. Unfortunately, I think it, the 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 upside's bleak. Yeah. Now, speaking of players that that do have some power, the NBA uh, there there was a bunch of news yesterday, and I kind of have it all chronicled uh, chronologically. So, at eleven fourteen a.m. yesterday, uh, eleven fourteen a.m. Pacific time yesterday, Adrian Wojnarowski tweeted this out. Quote, National Basketball Players Association regional representatives started texting NBA players today with a, quote, yes or no question. It says it will keep confidential. Clearly, this was not kept confidential if Woj is tweeting it out. But the question was this. Do you want to try and play again this season? The union's trying to gauge broader sentiment of its 400-plus players. Six minutes later... Woj quote tweets his original tweet with another one saying sources. Some teams received the question as part of a group text that included the entire roster. One rep asked a team's player teams players quote. Do you want to try and play this season? Yes or no. Another rep worded to a different group quote. Do you want the season to start again? At 1:29 PM Shams Charania tweeted out, the National Basketball Players Association has released a statement to the Athletic and Stadium. 
quote, the NBA, the MBPA is not engaging and has not authorized any formal poll of its players. Translation. Now, this is me translating. Text messages aren't formal is what the Players Association is saying because they clearly didn't want the text message to, to get out. The text message got out, so now they got to play a little bit damage control by basically saying text messages aren't their formal way of polling players. Yeah, it's definitely not formal. You can't do like a Zoom call now or a phone call. Well, but I'm saying the Players Association was trying to cover up that they really were indeed trying to pull their players to gauge how they felt about the season starting again. Oh, yeah. No, I, I know. No doubt about that. So then at 2.07 p.m. yesterday, Yahoo's Chris Haynes tweeted out that, quote, LeBron James, Chris Paul, Damian Lillard, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, and Stephen Curry held a private conference call on Monday and established United Front in favoring of resuming the season. Uh, the call also included Lakers big man Anthony Davis and was organized by MBPA President Chris Paul. All parties were in agreement to take the court with proper safety measures once the league is given the green light to commence, sources said, according to Chris Haynes. Haynes also reported in the article accompanied by the tweet uh, that I just read, uh, quote, in a conference call with players on Friday, NBA commissioner Adam Silver stated that he couldn't guarantee, or Adam Silver stated that he could not guarantee the safety of the players if play resumed in a city where they would be quarantined, but assured them the league would do everything in its power to make the safest conditions possible, sources said. One player told Brad Turner, the LA Times, that he thinks the split amongst players who want to continue the season is 70-30 in favor, quote, but 30% is a big number. And what do you say to somebody who says, you know what? I don't feel safe. It, it's hard to argue that. End quote. Uh, later on that evening, Shams tweeted, sources the MBPA has sent a memo to agents stating sense is players and NBA both want the 2019-2020 season uh, to finish and informed reps of players listed below serving on the new committee. Uh, there's basically a new committee being put together by the NBPA uh, of Chris Paul, Jason Tatum, Kyle Lowry, Russell Westbrook, and Dwight Powell to help navigate the negotiation, not navigate the conversation with the league on how to restart the league and resume the season. And then I guess Woj tweeted out that there was a Board of Governors call between Adam Silver and all the Board of Governors of the NBA, which is the owners of the NBA. And Basically, some of the things that were discussed in this call were the bubble idea of playing in a concentrated area like Vegas or Orlando at Disney, and Adam Silver used the term, quote, campus environment regarding that plan, and also Silver discussed how other leagues around the world are working towards their returns and how the NBA can learn from them. Also, Adam Silver discussed with the Board of Governors understanding the trajectory of new cases of coronavirus, understanding who's getting severely ill and wide developments in testing and how other sports are handling positive tests among participants and continuing to play. But Silver basically told the Board of Governors on the call that 
if a positive test would, quote, shut us down, we probably shouldn't go down this path. So the question remains, how many positive tests is too many? And once the NBA formalizes a return to play, the league indicated to teams that the plan would be to standardize coronavirus testing among all 30 teams. So all 30 teams would be getting tests, getting tested on a standardized basis so that they would be able to continue playing. Now, the Board of Governors and we're told by Adam Silver that the commissioner is aiming for a two to four week timetable on the decision of whether to resume the season or not. And this was after he told players on Friday that this decision could go into June. So we might not know if the season is to resume until June. So, but this is the first time since March 11th when the season was suspended that we have a specific time frame of when we know we could have a resumption of the NBA season. So I know that was a lot, but to me, it still doesn't seem like we're anywhere close. Yeah, so the NBA, they desperately want to salvage this season. I mean, what sports league wouldn't? But the way it's looking, and honestly, I'm going to have to side with Adam Silver. Yeah, you don't know what number of cases is too much because this virus is spreading like wildfire, and you don't know where you can get it, who can have it. Some people are asymptomatic. So that being said is you do have this campus-like environment, let's just say at Disney in Orlando. But the problem is, one, scheduling teams to play and practice, that's going to be a little tough too because you're going to invite the majority of the teams, if not all of them there, to stay. Am am I right? That's what it's saying, right? So that's going to be tough in itself. And the whole spreading part, that's another issue because let's just say at a practice facility – gyms in general a lot of people use different equipment and everybody's touching everything from a player's standpoint yeah that 30 percent doesn't want to go and resume the season because if let's just say they go and they use a practice facility and they somehow touch a weight and then they touch their face or whatever the case may be and they contract the coronavirus like that's going to be tough because now you're going to have people scared because now they're going to think it's going to spread again and that goes to adam silver's point is How many cases are too much? Well, I think also part of that 30% that the player mentioned to Brad Turner, the LA Times, that's got to be guys on teams that are out of the playoffs. Their season is over anyway. So, yeah, but even if they weren't, you know, in a a non-playoff team still, yeah, I could see that there is some teams that don't want to come back only because, yeah, they're worried about their families and their own health, presumably, you know, that they don't want to continue the season. So... Tyler, what do you think? Oh, there's a lot to think. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm going to stay my ground pretty strong kind of throughout this whole thing. And I've, you know, I've been kind of a big advocate that they should just, they should scrap this season. I couldn't agree uh, more. But, but obviously, you know, there's, there's player. It's a split. It's a split kind of fraternity right now with who wants to play, who doesn't. And I think in regards to just the whole, like, what's too much, it's just like, if one player says he doesn't feel safe coming, you like you have you can't like force this player to go to work in like an unhealthy environment. Like I don't know, is Carl Anthony Towns going to be very like stoked to to play? Yeah, no, right that's now? a very good oh, point. Absolutely not. Either. That's a very good and, point. And, and it's not that it's not the issue. I don't think the issue of the player is getting sick. It's the parents and the and the children, and the, it's a caring disease that we're not worried about. 
the young, strong, healthy people. We're worried about the people who have like, you know, not as strong immune systems, the sick, the elderly, and the and the really young. So, you know, I think the answer is one person. It only takes one person getting sick or one person saying no to where you got to shut it down. And this is an unprecedented time. Yeah, I don't think there's nothing to compare it to. It's kind of like arbitrary to say, like, you know, what, you know, like what percentage of players should, you know, it's like we're just kind of all making it up as we go, trying to figure out what's the best possible way. Unfortunately, they're trying to push it when I just, I'm kind of pessimistic in the sense that. If they do push it, I don't think it's going to work. I think you're going to have an issue with someone getting sick. And then it's like if someone's family member dies again, you know, like there's just so too much risk right now and too many unknown variables that, you know, I just hope they shut down the season. Yeah, no, I think, well, I don't, I don't know how any league can really think about anything other than shutting down again if – yeah. one person were to test positive player or not yeah just exactly. anybody a coach a, an athletic trainer a a team doctor a, a ball boy yeah. just anybody that's around well it's like you know can coach k and roy williams fight this disease can p carroll fight this disease greg popovich you know, these are guys these are guys in their 70s you know like what if one of them died it, you know it's just like that's a real threat and it's just like I think Carl Anthony Towns is like, that's the end of the story. Go ask Carl Anthony Towns if he wants to step into a gym where it's like unknown, whether there's no fans or not. Like, I doubt he does. Yeah, I mean, the you fact know? that he and, lost and, his mother, and, it's it's so unthinkable. It's like, like, what what is Carl Anthony Towns going to say if Chris Paul comes to him, like, ask him to play? Like, can Chris Paul really look him in the eyes and, and ask him? I don't think so. Yeah. And and and, and so. Yeah, and like like you were saying, I like you were, I, I'm real, I'm really disappointed that they're like moving forward so strong. But I also understand from like, you know, just a competitive standpoint to want to get back on the court. Yeah, and like you were saying, the the split fraternity, it's it's really tough when you have guys like LeBron, Chris Paul, Damian Lillard, Giannis, Russell Westbrook, KD, Kawhi, Steph Curry, them all getting on like a private conference call, them saying they have a united front and them wanting to to resume the season it you're completely right Tyler I don't think any one of those guys can look Carl Anthony Towns in the eye and ask him to play when when Carl Anthony Towns just lost his mom and I don't believe it was an anonymous choice I believe that the NBA players made a choice together and the people that disagreed were going to roll with it like I don't believe that Steph Curry wants to resume the season what does he get out of it but he's going to like agree with the rest of the guys because they're going to be a united front, you know what I mean? He doesn't yeah, the want stars to, like, of the league have to be a united front. Exactly. So it's like, I don't believe that they all, like, what? I, I, you know, like, why would Steph Curry want the, this year to start? It's like, what, what would he gain from it? Like, like I see, I understand the urgency of a LeBron James because this is, these are his moments. This, this is all he's got. It's finite. There's only, you know, two, two three years left in, you know, his prime tank, you know, that we know of. So it's just like there's going to be different motives from different players. But I think that it's kind of just self. It's just it's a, it's a new thing, so I'm not trying to be too critical, but it's, I think it's super selfish if these pro sports really try to open. Like, don't, don't, like, try to open facts. Like, let society open first and then be – you don't need to be the first thing to open. 
you know what I mean? Let 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 them, you know, kind of open up society first, and then if society is strong enough, then we can open sports. Well, I think the way the NBA sees it as they're the example, they're the ones who shut everything down in the first place for sports by pulling the plug on their season once uh, Mitchell and um, who's their their center, right? Rudy Gobert, and, and Gobert, he uh, he tested positive. But I think, I mean, I would I would love to have the season back. Yeah. I don't know who wouldn't, but yeah. as far as as far as the safety and fa- for the families of these players, I think that's what they're concerned about. And yeah, they do have the competitive edge. But you also have to think about it, like, at what cost? Because you don't know, a lot of people don't know about this virus. Like, it's spreading. You don't know how you can get it at times, you know? And it's just the interaction because there's so many people on a team, not just the players, but the coaches, the the, um, the training staff, stuff like that. And you made a good point. A lot of these coaches, or a good, a good amount of them, are in their 60s, 70s, even early 80s. So it's like, come on. It's like you're going to put those people at risk, regardless if they have their underlying health conditions. That's the that's the part, too. But it's like you're going to put their lives at risk, and, and like you have to account for their families as well. So I think the whole thing of it pushing it, like for moving it forward is tough because you just don't know. There's so many moving factors. But, again, the NBA is the more um, the more bolder organization and and fr- – and, um, and uh, team sport because they're the ones who are trying to set the example for the NFL and the MLB. Now they're kind of feeding off of each other and rightfully so, because nobody knows what the hell to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that like setting the example to shut down first, it was showed that you cared about people more than your sport. And I think the example of opening last would be the NBA's way of showing that they really care the most. Like if you want to set an example, don't open yeah. Show that you're like, so that you're taking this virus seriously and you're not just trying to be the first one to open the gates. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I'm just scrolling through Twitter right now as, as we're recording, and I found a tweet from uh, Woj who quote tweeted a, a tweet from Ramona Shelburne, and Ramona Shelburne is reporting that the Miami Heat were able to open their practice facility today and they had 12 players show up for voluntarily, socially distanced workouts. And Woj is reporting that, according to his sources, he believes that 22 of the 30 NBA practice facilities will be open for voluntary workouts by Monday. So that's including yeah. California it and New York. It doesn't, it doesn't specify what teams. No, 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 I know he didn't specify. But assuming that's what he means, though... That California, I don't and know what it New means. York teams would be able to voluntarily go back. He's saying twenty-two of thirty, so that leaves out so, eight yeah, teams. Maybe. There are two teams in New York. There's four teams in California. Because I don't see those people having a voluntary, um, um, what is it, uh, socially distanced yeah, workout. See, I don't see that happening. Only be only because those are the hot spots on the West Coast. It's it's California, specifically Los Angeles. So maybe Sacramento. Uh, for the Kings, they have an exception. I don't know. But teams like New York, that's going to be tough because they they were the epicenter at one point, and they still are. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with Tyler. I'm, I'm sticking to my guns on this. I've said from the get-go that they should just cancel the season and not mess up next year to where they have to move the calendar for next season. I think I... I just don't move on, man. Yeah, I just don't rip, think. Rip, rip the bandaid off. Like, well, the way I you know, see it. Part, and part of it is like I know they're going to open up and I know it's going to go bad. The longer, open up this, 
you're going to open up these practice facilities and someone's going to get sick and they're going to close them back down. Yeah, Adam Silver saying that he's giving it another two to four weeks to make a decision. It just, it, the I feel like the longer it goes, the less likely there is, or the less productive it will be to have the resumption of the season rather than they're just being the next season. And honestly, the biggest takeaway from it is him saying, yeah, you don't know um, how many cases is, is too many. Just right. because you can have one, but then it can multiply. One should be the number. Yeah, one should be. That's bad enough. So I think that's why he's weighing in on it. And, yeah, at some point, you just have to call it quits. As as much as you don't want to just pull the plug on the season, and they have really tried to salvage it, as you can tell, because that's what they've been talking about for the past two, three months, they really want to keep this alive. But the way I see it, though, is that this season's already affected by it, and next season I think is going to be affected by it either I, way. Yeah, yeah, and with that, with that being said, next season is already being affected by it with the NCAA and the NBA announcing that they're indefinitely postponing the NBA's June 3rd early entry withdrawal date for draft prospects, meaning prospects have more time to decide whether they want to return to school or not. And that's going to affect even the summer league too, because that's held in Vegas. And it, so the summer league, they've they're already not going to have that. The combine, they're trying to figure. They might have a virtual combine, is what they're talking about. They they've postponed a lot of stuff already to to give more time to figure out a way to help save this season without taking into regard, I think, next season. And I think that's the biggest problem. They can't have two seasons affected by this, in my in in my opinion. But and I know Tyler but, believes that too. Yeah, but that's the path that they're already on right now. Is that this season is already affected by it. you can't do nothing about it besides either that's resume or pull the plug. I, I I just think that like if you were really just shut it down now, pull I completely the plug, agree. Like, it, like if you if you make the decision, then at least everyone is like, okay, we shut it down, we can move on, we're moving on to next year, like. Now everybody's stuck in limbo. Like, are we playing this? Like, should I stay ready for this year? Should I get ready for next year? Like, what am I doing? You know, GMs, should I start building my roster for next year? Should I keep thinking about, like, our playoff push this year? You know I mean? Just, like, make a decision so at least everybody can just move on with their lives. But, unfortunately, I think it's not going to happen that way. And they're going to have a couple more hiccups along the way. And, it is going to affect next season, but it doesn't have to still right now today. It doesn't have to affect next season. Even if you push back this combine, the draft, the summer league, those are things you can push back and still recover. I feel like. Yeah. Now. All right. Let's take a step back from professional sports. And I mentioned something that the NCAA did with in a in along with the NBA, but the NCAA needs to figure out what they need to do to restart all of college sports. And the NCAA said in uh, a statement on Tuesday from President Mark Emeritt that the NCAA won't mandate or oversee a uniform return to college sports. They're going to leave that decision of when start dates should occur to state officials and university presidents. So, there's still no timetable for a return for college sports. And Mark Emmert said it's not the NCAA's role to determine one in this instance. He, yeah. I was going to say, for once, I agree with the NCAA. Like, yeah. They should, they should fall. Like, that's the way you do it. Like, 
let society and the state, and, you know, and figure out what we're doing, and then the sports can decide. Like, sports don't need to be on the front line of, like, opening back up society. It's not that important. It is important. Obviously, like, I'm a diehard sports fan, but it's not – it's not essential to living like a grocery store and the DMV and, you know, parks and stuff like, you know, that is to, you know, to people. Right. And with the NCAA coming out and saying they weren't going to make the decision, a lot of the conference in conferences were saying they wanted to be the ones to make the decision. But Mark Emmert had this to say. He said, quote, normally there's an agreed-upon start date for every sport every season, Emmert told ESPN. Quote, but under these circumstances, now that's all been derailed by the pandemic. It won't be the conferences that can do that either. It will be the local and state health officials that say whether or not you can open and play football with fans. Um, Bravo. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a great statement. I think, like I said, I can't believe I'm agreeing with the NCAA, but that's, I think that's the right thing to do. I think that's like, that's something that other leagues should fall suit on. Yeah. So I, I just, I don't think we are anywhere closer to having live professional major sports, live college sports than we were two months ago when the, this all really started. I mean, we're, the NBA season was suspended on March 11th. It's now May 13th. I agree with you. Two months and some change. I think think if we think we're closer, we're, we're lying to ourselves and we're not really, we're not, we're not really thinking right. You know, like it's just, you got to assume that like the first time you open back up, there's going to be some hiccups no matter what. So you got to work through all, it's going to be a long process. Yeah. But so I mean that's that's really the latest on where we are. So let's close it out now with some more positive stuff. Oh, this is a hundred percent times positive. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. The Last Dance episodes seven and eight. They were mainly about Michael Jordan retiring the first time and going to play baseball after his father's murder. Uh then obviously the comeback from baseball slash retirement and ultimately it ends with the tip-off of the Eastern Conference Finals in 1998 against the Indiana Pacers. Episode 7 averaged 5.3 million viewers. Episode 8 averaged 4.9 million viewers. Together, 7 and 8 averaged 5.1 million viewers. And episodes 1 through 8 are, are averaging 5.6 million viewers. So like we've been doing the last few weeks, I just have a list of moments from each episode that we'll kind of go through. Uh, First, obviously, I wanted to talk about uh, Michael Jordan's father's death and the effect it had on Jordan. People wrongfully speculating, I think, on Jordan's father's murder was because of Michael's gambling or it had something to do with it. I don't believe those speculations to be true. Jordan's father, though, was missing for three weeks, which I think is just downright crazy, especially to think about in these times. If if someone doesn't get in contact with you within a couple hours, 
you you kind of start to freak out these days and especially with technology being able to get in touch with someone is a lot easier these days but for Jordan's father to be missing for three weeks I couldn't even imagine what that must have been like for for the family yeah that's a little strange only because yeah I don't believe the allegations either of it tied into Jordan's gambling issues but the the fact that he was gone for three weeks and they couldn't find any traces of him that to me is a little it's a little strange so I, I, I found it weird they didn't mention that like he had a championship ring on him because like Jordan's dad had had a championship ring on him and that was stolen oh and I didn't so, even like, know that, that. that yeah, that's why I was, and like that's like what I grew up knowing. Now I didn't really like dig super deep to kind of fact check that, but that's kind of like what I was always led to believe was that like there's a missing Jordan championship ring, and that was kind of like a motive, you know, like that that thing on the black market is obviously that like priceless. Yeah, but that makes uh, that makes sense because the way they the way they said it all happened in the documentary was. He was driving back from South Carolina or wherever he was. He was near the South Carolina, North Carolina border, and he just got tired and he pulled off to the side of the road to take a nap like anybody would normally do in that situation. And uh, I guess two young guys, like 18 or 19 years old, came up to the car and robbed him and murdered him. So, I mean, that, that would make sense if they took the championship ring from James Jordan. Yeah, I thought it was like kind of an opportunistic type of a deal but maybe you know that when they didn't show that's like all i was thinking about i was like you know maybe i heard like a false kind of story going up but Hmm. um i don't think it had anything to do with the gambling and i think that was definitely like a cheap shot kind of like bringing it up by journal journal yeah no it was it was was funny uh someone i'm pretty sure it was uh, someone i went to high school with ben stevens he tweeted out the first 20 minutes of episode seven were not a great moment for journalism no. with, with it starting yeah. off with Craig Sager asking the, the backstabbing question and Jerry Krause, the GM getting mad at Craig and storming off before, uh, before the playoffs at that press conference. And then one of the other reporters saying way to go Craig. And then all the, the false supposed allegations of his father's murder being associated with his gambling. It, it definitely wasn't a good moment for journalism that those first 20 minutes. No. And I, th- I mentioned this last week is that we, uh, during the nineties is that, you know, he was such a, a star globally, you know, he was the face of the NBA and that people just wanted to find something wrong with him. So again, because of the gambling issues, maybe they didn't get enough information to they dig were up. Clinging to yeah, it. they wanted to still peg it to him. Like this is why they killed your father because it was a gambling related issue with you. And so again, they're still trying to um, use him as as the. Um, they're as trying the, to make it his fault. Yeah, yeah. As the hit mark, they're just giving him all the blame for it. Again, because he was such a perfect idol that everybody saw. Again, global athlete. And he was on top of the world during this during this time, peak level, him and his team, and they needed something to peg on him. Yeah. Now, along with the gambling, being wrongfully associated with his father's murder, there's a lot of people out there that believe in the conspiracy that David Stern has secretly suspended Michael Jordan for those 18, 15, 18 months, whatever he was away from the game from. But he had been secretly suspended because of the gambling and the issues and the negative PR 
that it had brought to the league. But the documentary had spoke with David Stern before he passed away. David Stern adamantly denied it. Michael Jordan adamantly denied it. So it was... Yeah. It was a bunch of bullshit, for sure. Yeah. I think there's something, there's something, you know, like to his gambling that, you know, we don't know the full story, but I don't think his dad was killed and I don't think he like stepped away from sports because of gambling. Yeah. But that, that retirement press conference was a like, where were you when moment? Do you, Tyler, do you remember or were you too young? With, with what? Jordan. Jordan retired? Yeah. The first time. Oh yeah. I know. Yep. I know exactly where I was. Oh, so, so was this is exactly what I'm moving, saying. Yeah. yeah, no, that was big time. Where were sure. you? I mean, it was it was a little A-frame house in Lake Limerick, and it was basically like the first house we had when we moved to Sheldon, kind of like transitioning until we found like the house that we eventually settled in for, you know, over a decade. So it was just like this little A-frame house on the golf course um, that we lived in for maybe a year when we moved to Sheldon. And... uh yeah, I was just in that house, I remember. Just watching um, on the TV? Yeah, well, and, like, the newspaper, I can remember, like, I think the newspaper was probably even, like, a bigger deal, you know, because I wasn't necessarily watching live TV at 10, but I for sure knew what was going on. And, uh, I mean, Jordan just had played the Sonics a couple years prior, so right. obviously Jordan was just, like, the megastar, but I definitely remember the newspapers in that house. So I guess it's not, like, a specific time but it's you know i know roughly like i can remember that that kind of like finding out in shock yeah but there are definitely people that remember exactly where they were when they watched that press yeah, conference yeah. yep yep and uh i looked it up kind of a side note I looked it up jordan's dad had a had an 86 all-star ring mm. so apparently jordan got a ring for being an all-star and he had an nba championship watch so okay. like apparently, like, oh, so he, he, so he didn't have the ring on. It wasn't a championship ring, but it yeah. was an all-star ring. It was an all-star ring and a championship watch that were, like, both those things were given to Michael as, like, prizes, and his dad was wearing them. Right. And they're not, like, found today. Right, and obviously those are very valuable. It, yeah, so it's, um, you know, El Chapo's got them or something. <laughs> But all right, the next next thing I had on the list, Jordan hit two oh two. He knocked in fifty one runs and stole thirty bases in double A ball. The only reason he was put in double A ball was because the facilities in rookie ball and single A ball wouldn't have been able to handle the media demand that Michael was gonna attract. But the fact that he started out with a 13 game hit streak and hit 202 after not playing baseball for like a decade or even longer. Hey, that's pretty good. Was impressive. I yeah. I saw uh Dodgers pitcher Walker Bueller tweet out that he didn't even hit 200 in double A ball. Uh so it was a lot of people said that he if like Terry Francona who was in the documentary who I was very surprised to see but turns out he was Michael Jordan's manager At the for, time, the, for yeah. the Birmingham Barons. He said, give Michael Jordan 1,500 at-bats, and he might have been able to make a major league squad. Do I believe that? I don't know. But knowing Michael Jordan 
from everything I've seen in the documentary and everything and his I've heard. His obsessive behavior. His obsessive behavior, his work ethic, and everything. He might have been able to do it. He would have probably been uh, like an but, average MLB player, not one of the greatest ones, but an average one, but still making an MLB roster would be pretty impressive after, what, like eight years in the NBA and then you switch over and you finish out your your athletic career playing MLB? If you would have put five years of any point in his life into baseball, he would have made he would have made the pros for sure. He's just that special of a work, uh, you know, work ethic and a mentality. That's like what carries it. And then when it comes to fielding, he's athletic. So, um, and it sounds like he hit decent enough. Like, you know, he's just a freak athlete that way. Yeah. Now, what while Michael was playing baseball, the Bulls only won two less games without Michael Jordan in the full season he took off. Scotty obviously, uh, Scotty Pippen obviously became the number one guy, but he's obviously he was more of a facilitator. So it was it was really more of a team game that that the Bulls were playing, and it was successful for them in the regular season. Yeah, this was an argument that I brought up a while back. We were talking about the greatest players, and uh, I think this is something that plays to people like Kobe and LeBron's argument. You know that like I think Jordan did have like an exceptional supporting cast through his entire run, um, and like I definitely think that. You know, the Pau Gasol Lakers and, and uh, uh, you know, the Cavs, I don't think they were as good as those Bulls, like, supporting cast. Yeah. Uh, that that was, like, a really good basketball team, even without Michael Jordan. Um, so, that obviously, like, you know, obviously, MJ is the GOAT. And, you know, it's like you're nitpicking with people like Braun and Kobe, but... That's definitely a chink in his armor, I feel like, is him stepping away in the Bulls, one game away from the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, and you know what else I thought when they were going through all this? I thought it was really interesting when they talked about Pippen and the triangle. Is like, man, how how different of, like, LeBron's career would it have been if he was coached by a triangle offense? Oh, man. And they, You know, it's just like they show that Pippen was able to be a facilitator and lead that team, you know, without like a big time score. You have, you know, you have shooters and complimentary scores like Ku Coach, uh, shooters like Kerr, and, and big seven footers to clog, you know, clog the plane to protect the rim. It's like, it's inter- interesting to, to think about what LeBron could have done in the triangle offense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, statistically and record wise, they were right up there with the previous championship teams of the bulls. Yeah. They just didn't have Jordan and they still made it to the playoffs. But the only thing I want to mention is that as great of a player as Pippen is just that game that he sat out. That, okay, so that's, that's to me, that was a big issue only because that just shows the leadership wise um, and, and character on him. Yeah. That, that was, that's obviously the next thing I had written down was Scotty refusing to go into the game because Phil called the potential game-winning play for Tony Kukoc and not Scotty. The Bulls ultimately end up winning the game on Kukoc's shot. He he hits the shot. They win the game. But everyone goes into the locker room, and the vibe is all weird, and Scotty has to apologize after Bill Cartwright addresses the team and starts crying in front of the team and saying how disappointed he was in Scotty and all of that. And eventually the team according to Steve Kerr says they put it behind him. They accepted Scotty's apology. He realized he messed up. 
they still had to finish this series with the Knicks. So, but I, I feel like that's why they lost this oh, 100%, series. Hundred percent. That's their, why they lost. Their team morale and demeanor was already diminished once Scotty decided to sit down. And in this documentary, he strictly says, "Would I would I do it again? Yes." And that to me, that's a big I, ooh, thing. And, I don't know. And and Scotty's reputation took a big hit for it. And, no, it did. And this is directly linked back to the USA, the '92 Olympics, when they. Uh, with him and Jordan specifically went after and dogged Tony Kukoc only because Jerry Krause was so fond of this guy and said, this is the future of the Bulls, basically spitting in the face of Jordan and Pippen saying, all right, you guys are going to have your time in a couple of years. We're going to focus on Kukoc being the centerpiece for the Bulls. So this is directly related to that. Yeah, and I think also ultimately, I think Phil, in his mind, he's thinking New York probably thinks – I'm going to draw up a play for Scotty because Scotty's our number one right now. I know this play is going to work for Tony. It's worked in the past. Let's go with this instead because maybe New York's not going to expect it. New York's not expecting it. Tony hits the shot. They win the game. But now they're in this weird predicament because Scotty didn't want to go into the game. And you could say that the uh, the outcome of the series could have been different had Pippen gone in there and been okay with Kukoc getting the last shot, him still hitting it, they maybe have the confidence to win that series and make it to the finals. You don't know, but because their whole morale was shot once he went in there and the chemistry was off, uh, to me, I think that that obviously changed the whole series. What do you think, Tyler? Uh, I think it was a lasting judgment about Pippen in the moment. I don't want to crucify the guy, like because I know as a competitor and as like a killer, you know, he's a competitive guy. He wanted his shot for sure. Uh, I don't think. I, I don't think it had anything to do with the Olympics. I, I don't think it had anything to do with Tony Kukoc. I think whatever name you would have named, you would have been pissed if it wasn't Pippen. So I think it was a lapse in judgment. And uh, ultimately, I think that he's just doubling down on it now as an old man because it's like, why not just own your decision? Yeah. If if you could really do it over again, I bet he does. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, I don't believe I, I think that he's just being – He's a confident man. He's doubling down on his decision making as a, you know, he doubled down on his contract, like, and, you know, which is cool. It's respectable. Like, he's not no, he's sticking. His, he's he's sticking his, to his guns. He's a Mount Rushmore small forward. Um, it's like Pippen don't got proof shit. So I think it was a lapse in judgment. Don't want to crucify him for it. I don't think it had anything to do with co-coach. Um, and I also don't believe that changed the outcome of the series. I don't. I think that New York was a far more talented team, but that Chicago team was just like so well, like ran, you know, they were so well coached. They'd all play together. They all knew the offense. They all knew the defense. They were just like such a good team, such good chemistry that, that they could like outplay their talent. Whereas like, I think the Knicks win. It's amazing to me that they went to seven games with the Knicks. That I, year. Was ju- I was just about to say, they were still able to push that series to seven games. Yeah, so they're a couple shots away from us not even talking about this. And so, like, yeah, that's, that's I guess that's how I feel about that, that whole situation. Yeah. Did you guys catch the clip in the montage of when Jordan was playing baseball and it was just the Bulls without him? But did you catch the clip that Scotty threw a chair in frustration? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that happened. That's wild. I mean, I I didn't know that specific event happened, but I always knew like Pippen was kind of a a diva. I well, think. I mean, it, you're, he's clearly you're, got you're an starting, attitude. I, see, this well, is why I think he now, had like, the leadership issues, though, only because of 
it wasn't just him sitting in that game, but before that. I'm not gonna argue, I'm not gonna argue his leadership issues because he's not the leader MJ was. Yeah, no, 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 no. But he was but given think, he was think, given the leadership role for that season and a half. No, but I'm agreeing with you. Like I'm yeah. not gonna I'm not gonna like say he's the best leader. He was definitely had some diva tendencies, but I think his leading was more so on the court, being a team player, facilitator, pass first guy. I feel like those those personalities are just kind of like natural leaders. If you're willing to pass the ball and be the best player on the team, that's kind of a leadership tendency. Yeah, no, I the only reason I was bringing it up was just because we hear so much about the Bobby Knight chair incident. I'd never even heard of the Scottie Pippen chair incident. Well, it doesn't fare like baby. Bobby Knight. It, Bobby Knight, that you know, those were iconic was, chair throws. Yeah, that was like that's college too. I think that's just like and it's the coach just a bigger deal but dude the 90s 80s 90s you know people were punching each other Robin yeah no i know balls. i know you know but it was cool I, I had never seen that clip before for sure yeah all right the next thing i had written down uh was obviously the infamous breakfast meeting between bj armstrong and michael jordan and that turns into bj inviting him to the birdo center to see all his old teammates and BJ saying, oh, it'd be great. The guys really want to see you, blah, blah, blah. And then that sparked into BJ saying, MJ, I bet I could beat you one-on-one right now. And MJ taking the bait. And that ultimately is what brought MJ back to basketball in the middle of the season in 95. Uh, Yeah, so, like, one, one, I think Jordan always, like, was going to come back. So, like, I'm glad that BJ finally just kind of, like, pushed him. And, two, I also think that Jordan always gets a pass on this this comeback season, too. You know, no one wants to ever mention it because uh, they didn't win. They were beating the playoffs and all that kind of stuff. But um, thank God BJ Armstrong got him back when he did. But I think Jordan probably would have been better off just coming back that next season. Yeah. And, well, yeah, so, I mean – his body was so different after training for baseball and transforming his body to to a baseball body that when he came back, yeah, he did show some flashes of the old Jordan, but he was clearly not himself and his body wasn't prepared properly for him to, to come back so soon and be as effective as he wanted to be. But ultimately that's what led him to building the Jordan dome. Uh, well, having Warner brothers build the Jordan dome for him when he was shooting space jam here in LA. But real quick, I want to talk about the, the return season one, the I'm back facts and that monumental moment of just him simply just saying, I'm back. I just thought that was really cool. He just needed two words. Like I'm back. That's it. Well, and it was great to get the agent's perspective, like hearing that the agent, yeah, he was struggling to come up with it. Like, that's great. Like, hey, you write it then. And so MJ, you know, takes a piece of paper and writes that. Like, that's just a great little anecdote. Right. It, it's similar to how David Falk, his agent at the time, told the story of how Air Jordan came up. He came up with Air Jordan. Just those little minute stories that don't really have a lot of detail, but they were such monumental right. moments. They say a lot. Yeah, exactly. And then Michael just going with 45 and the reason behind it because it was the first number he wore in high school and his dad not being there anymore and 
him feeling weird about putting the 23 on without his dad being in the crowd to see him play. When he retired in 93, his whole thing was my dad got to see my last basketball game. And just that that uncomfortability that MJ had when he was wearing the 45 and him going back to 23, I just I thought it was really cool. Yeah, le- legendary stuff. 45 is actually another one of those stories that I thought, like, they didn't, like, like the dad's jewelry, you know, that he had on that was stolen. Like, that's kind of a key piece I feel like they should have told. I also didn't, um, I also didn't know that the double nickel was scored in 45. Yeah. Yeah, I did know that. I only, I only, I, yeah, I, I only, can picture. Uh, uh, I only knew that because of the shoes that he wore. Oh, yeah, I guess yeah. that's true. I just. I guess I just never really looked back at that detail. But and then, so grow so growing up with forty five, I w- now I might have to look this up too, but I was always on the assumption his older brother, Larry, was like the one that was always beating him, you know, which right. is kinda of like probably how he got so good. And Larry's number was forty five. So that oh. was like why he originally picked it and then changed to twenty three. And like the story I remember being told was he switched to twenty three because he wanted to be like half as good as his brother. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so that was like that was always the the story I heard about forty five. And then when I was watching this, they didn't touch on it at all. So I kind of like questioned my memory once again. <laughs> but we'll have to see if there's any truth to it. Interesting. But all right, going back to the Jordan Dome, Michael inviting so many players to come out and play at the Jordan Dome that summer, not only just to help me get him back in shape, but cunningly in the back of oh, his he head. was doing some scouting right yeah. him him inviting such elite level talent he was getting scouting reports himself on his opponents that he was going to be facing later on once the nba regular season started so i thought that was a a brilliant move on mj's part and just kind of like a method to his madness like a behind the scenes look almost yeah honestly this is one of my favorite nuggets too of this uh, episode only because Reggie Miller broke it down, and he said that Jordan was crazy. He would get up at 7 a.m., 6 a.m. to shoot yeah, his for shoot, the movie. His schedule while he was shooting Space Jam and the workouts he would incorporate in his breaks and all of that, that was just amazing to, to find out about. Yeah, like this guy had 12, 15-hour days and just kept doing it day in, day out. And like after he was shooting, he would go and do runs for a couple of hours, and he still had to get up the next day to shoot. So that to me is, is crazy in itself because it's like – you're shooting the movie, and yeah, it doesn't seem like acting takes a lot, but like the days are long, and you it can get tiring. And to just after that, after your day is done, as far as your movie uh, production is is over, then you got to go run with some of the best players. Which again, he was kind of scouting to see what was going to come in the next few seasons because he was going to come back. And to me, yeah, I think that, that was the best okay. nugget of of the of the episode. Yeah, no, the the Jordan runs are are legendary, and it's awesome that. Like Warner Brothers built that court for him, and that's just like that's just classic legendary stuff. And it'd be interesting to see that, like, after after those runs, is that when all these like training facilities? Because like now now there's those runs like Chris Brickley's like Black Ops runs, the legendary UCLA runs, Rico Hines runs. Yeah, those are the UCLA UCLA ones. Yeah, so it's just like uh, you know there those runs exist now, so it's like. Maybe that was like the birth of it all. It might have been, honestly. It, it, it'd be interesting to like kind of look into it, but it's cool. And I also thought that it was like, you know, the obvious like kind of 
scouting aspect to it, but you also added, you know, like feeding like their energy, the younger guys' energy to come out there and try to beat Jordan accelerated his progress because, you know, he kind of had to like feed off of the young guys' energy and catch up, you know? Right. So I thought that was like also kind of like a genius move. Um, but just legendary shit. Yeah. Awesome. So awesome story. Yeah. All right. I got uh, three more things on the list. Uh, the first one that I'll mention, it's kind of a combination of multiple moments throughout both episodes, but they all kind of revolve around the same thing. Michael didn't need much to find a way to motivate himself. Oh, no. Even if he had to come up with some made up story in his head about why he needed to be motivated. Obviously, the LeBradford Smith uh, of the Wizards story. That was the funniest part of this of that episode was that he just took a small piece of that and turned it into something much bigger. Right. And he completely even made up that LeBradford Smith said, good game, Michael, after LeBradford Smith had just dropped 36 or 37 on the on the Bulls, and Michael didn't have a good game, and they had to play the Wizards the next night on a back-to-back of a home-and-home. Home. So in Washington, Michael had said that he was going to score as many points as LeBradford Smith did in the whole game. He was one shy. Michael said he was going to do it in the first half, and ultimately he scores 36 in the first half. Yep. But I had just become privy to the LeBradford Smith stories uh, within the last couple of months. So I had heard about it. So I was wondering if they were going to include it in the documentary. And when they did, I was like, oh, wow, that's really funny that David Aldridge brought it up. He was like, do you know the LeBradford Smith stories, by the way? And then he goes on to tell it. Now, a couple other moments similar to that, B.J. Armstrong, when he was in Charlotte in the playoffs and they win game two, and he um, basically taunts Jordan, Pippen, and Phil and the rest of the Bulls, and that's all Michael needed to to basically go at Charlotte and win the rest of the win the series. Then Nick Anderson in Orlando, even though they ultimately lose the series, the Bulls do, but. That whole 45 isn't 23 comment, that sparked something in Jordan that ultimately led to the Jordan Dome runs and him building or him having Warner Bros. build the Jordan Dome and just Jordan getting into that mentality again of I'm going to be the best, I am the best, I'm going to show you that. And eliminating them the following year in the playoffs. Exactly. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway for myself of these two episodes was, yeah, one of them was his retirement and him choosing baseball for that year and some change. And the other part was you can't say anything to him, nothing. You can't breathe his air. You can't say hi to him because apparently he makes, he makes things up just to give him that competitive edge. Well, and then the, la- the last uh, moment that I wanted to combine with all of these was in 96 when Michael sees George Carl yeah. at the restaurant and obviously they have a relationship because of North Carolina and all of that. But George had made an agreement with his team that they weren't going to engage in anything with the Bulls in between games and all of that. And George had tweeted that out uh, yesterday or the day before when after he saw the clip of Michael talking about that incident. The George was just staying true to his word that he had made to his team. Michael obviously took offense to that, but that was all Michael needed for the finals in 96. Which George was screwed either way. 
had he said something to him, he was going to get a little piece of that conversation and then use it as a drive. But because uh, George Carl didn't say anything to him at all, he used that instead. Yeah. Tyler, what do you think about all those? Um, see, my takeaway was a little different. I felt like the, the, the LeBradford Smith story kind of justified DJ Armstrong, Nick Anderson, George Carl, Gary Payton, um, basically anyone that stood up, you know, like vocally stood up to him. He was going to make it up regardless. Jordan was a killer. You yeah. have to do shit. So, like, I really don't think it matters. Like, I don't think George Carl passing him by, he would have done whatever. So, it would have been something else. Or he would have made something else up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, like Jacob said, George Carl would have said something. You know, Jordan, the Bradford Smith kind of shows you that he made this up. So, he doesn't even need you to say something to kind of get in that mode. That's his killer mode. That's why he is considered the greatest player of all time. That's why Kobe players are diehard because of that kind of mentality. Um, so to me, like George Carl, if I'm BJ Armstrong, fuck yeah, I'm letting them know that. I oh yeah, beef. You, you know what I'm saying? I don't think that that was like the wrong thing to do. No, I'm not. You poked the, you poked the bear. Yeah, no, oh, I no, wasn't I'm saying it was wrong. Like my, my, no, I'm just saying my point of view, like. I think that I think that LeBradford Smith proves that George Carl, B.J. Armstrong, uh, Nick Anderson that I, I think that their actions were justified and they should they shouldn't be like you know ashamed of those actions or feel like it's their fault like yeah. they poked a bear because the bear was just going to poke himself. No, and yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Whether you were going to poke Michael Jordan the bear or not, he was going to figure out a way to motivate himself, whether you liked it or not. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think it's like, why'd you go and do that? Or, oh, man, he fucked up there. Like, where's Carl fucked up? You know, like, no, he didn't. He, yeah. I think that he played, he played the card he was going to play. They weren't going to beat him in a seven-game series. I'd like to think it turned out different, you know, maybe if Gary Payton started out on MJ. But I don't know that. And ultimately, I think, like, taking them to six games was pretty good. Yeah. And – the the only reason I brought up LeBradford Smith was because I had heard about it a couple months ago and found out that he had made it up. So I wanted to see if they were going to bring it up in the documentary. And then, like you were saying, with the Sonics in 96, they didn't even mention that Gary Payton was hurt. And that's why George Carl had told him, you're not guarding MJ the first three games. And then obviously they get down 3-0 and yeah, Gary's like, exactly All right, right. yeah, no, like we got no, we got nothing to lose now. So. I have to it's guard interesting. him. It's interesting because I was going to bring that up because that was another thing when I was watching. Like, I read George Carl's book. I knew what he talked about with that whole thing. And so uh, I was like, but both of them can be right, you know? Yeah. Neither one of them talked about the injury, but at the same time, it's like, you know, maybe Peyton's just a competent guy. He's not going to make excuses and say, oh, my back was kind of hurt. Like, maybe he's just not going to say that. And and uh, George Carl was like, oh, if he's not 100%, I want to save his strength for offense. Right. Which is like, which which is ultimately what they said in the film. So it is interesting that they didn't bring up the back injury, but I do think that the back injury was true, and a part well, of the reason why, like, why wait till we get, you know they blew it, they completely blew it. Yeah, and I think, I think them not bringing up Gary Payton's back injury just has to do with the fact that Michael has full control uh, and creative control and producing control and all of that. 
Which that well, being I said, it, I don't believe Fake would want it to be said either. Well, I and, and, Fake and, would, would wouldn't and, want to be like making excuses. Exactly. Exactly. But it's still uh, important to note that Seattle wasn't at full strength. Yeah. Well, that, not only that, I mean, can, I could go all day, but <laughs> Nate, McMillan, Nate McMillan was hurt. He didn't, like, play a couple of the games. Like, he was so hurt. So he wasn't, like – and then David Wingate, I believe, or, or Vincent Askey, one of the other two – one of our two shooting guards was also hurt. So we had three banged-up guards – um, and you know, you know, it's funny real quick. We're talking about Peyton. Uh, I think that they took the Jordan stuff out of context with like his reaction to the, like, uh, Peyton's comment. Yeah. I think what he, I think what he was really saying was like, I don't have a problem with Gary Payton. I like Gary Payton. You know, like he, he was laughing. Like, of course that's just Gary being Gary. Right. You know, I... That's the glove. That's the glove. I don't feel like he was laughing. Like, Oh, I didn't have a problem with him. Like, I could just like work him. Right. I thought he was. I, I think that they took it out of context and kind of made it seem like he was laughing at Gary Payton's like abilities when I think he was laughing at his personality. Yeah, I think I think Michael was laughing at Gary saying like, "Oh yeah, I was giving him that work on defense, blah blah blah." Like I was getting him, getting my forearm into him, all that stuff. Like I think Michael was laughing at the fact that Gary thought he was really affecting him in just in that yeah. competitive mindset. To where Michael's like, no, yeah. bro, you you weren't affecting me. Come on, man, and that yeah, because they're both dogs, you know. Right, and Michael and Michael saying that he didn't have a problem with Gary shows that Michael has that respect for Gary, and he wasn't laughing at him; he was laughing with him more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that he enjoys Gary Payton's persona and respects him as like hundred percent era type that era type of player, and like even in the '98 All Star game, that little snippet, he's like see you in the finals yeah exactly you know know what i mean that was two years after they beat him right so that uh that i just felt like i had to say that i thought they kind of took they were trying to take it out of context and make it look like something i don't believe it was yeah i don't think i don't think michael was laughing at gary i think it was more laughing with yeah he's just like the glove that motherfucker yeah (laughs) (laughs) Similar to how, like, a player nowadays would react to, like, if Pat Bev was, like, sitting there, you know, like, talking about guarding LeBron. Like, motherfuckers would just laugh, like, there he goes. Yeah, it's like, that's Pat Bev being Pat Bev, man. Yeah, exactly. Which is funny because Tyler brought it up that it was kind of taken out of context. But before this episode, remember, there was a report saying that um, they were surprised Jordan was going to allow some of the content in these next few episodes. I was a little surprised of what that was exactly, well, I think, though. I, I think that's what I have written down next. Okay, because I don't know if it was maybe the Gary Payton stuff. No, I think it was we got the full details on what happened between MJ and Steve Kerr and the infamous punch in practice. Also, how he was with Scott Burrell. Uh, both Scott Burrell and Steve Kerr said they had a good relationship with MJ and Burrell has even said within the last couple of days, he's still in contact with MJ. They still have a relationship. Kerr, obviously he sees Michael when the Hornets and Warriors play. I got to assume they still have somewhat of a relationship. Uh, Steve even said in the documentary that after the punch, that was kind of what solidified himself with Michael and kind of made their relationship stronger. It was like, look, I'm not going to back down from you. You can do this all you like. You can try and punk me all you want, but I'm here. Like I'm here to stay kind of thing. And that ultimately 
gained Kerr a level of respect with Michael Jordan. And yeah, you're you're exactly right. Yeah, and sorry, sorry. No, you're good. And basically, what all of the other teammates were saying when they were asked about Michael's uh, leadership style and all of that. All of his other teammates were like, yeah, he's an asshole. He crossed the line a couple of times, this, that, and the other. But we won, so it didn't really matter. And that's like we say all the time, winning cures all. But I wanted to play a clip real quick of the montage of Michael berating Scott Burrell just because I thought it was just exquisite trash talk. fight me a couple of times in a good sense you know just to get him i man i'm tired of you picking on me i'm a, you know that type of mentality yeah, i could never get he's such a nice guy but i know we were gonna need him at some point in time and he's gonna remember this and he's gonna get out there and he's gonna fight you're playing with a guy that has the highest standards of any basketball player ever. You want to live up to that challenge. That's Scott Burrell. Hey, <laughs> Why you keep fucking up that play, you big fat head motherfucker? You laugh, you dumbass. Catch the ball when I throw it to you. I just throw it to you. The fear factor of, of MJ was so, so thick. You didn't make a damn jump shot all night long. I mean, did you make, you made one, didn't you? One percent. I feel bad for you, dog. Your cat's sick, go home and feed it. Marina cat child. Come on, Scott Come on, Scott Burrell. You better do something right. Make this free throw, homie. There you go. Sorry, I just I wanted to play it just because I thought it was exquisite trash talk by Michael, and this probably isn't going to be politically correct to say during these times, but I'm going to say it anyway. Just Michael's use of the word "ho" <laughs> talking to Scott Burrell was just hilarious. Yeah, I don't know how Scott Burrell just didn't deck him one day. But what's interesting is Michael brought brought it up in one of the interviews he had for the documentary. It was, he said he tried to start a fight with Scott Scott Burrell on multiple occasions. It just never happened. And Scott Burrell just was too nice of a guy. It wasn't going to happen with him. But Scott has gone on to say since the documentary has come out that th- w- the way Michael talked to him is what helped prepare him for not just basketball but for life. And then Michael saying that he tried to start a fight with Scott Burrell on multiple occasions and him actually starting a fight with Steve Kerr, it, that's just how Michael was going to push people. 
Which it's funny because B.J. Armstrong put it best is that he said he could not be a nice guy. He wouldn't be the player he was and finished his career as if he was a nice guy. Because you don't get by by just being a nice guy in any sport. You have to be a competitor, and that's what Michael was. He was a competitor. He was obsessive. And so him pushing his teammates to, to, to an outsider, this sounds like he's a complete asshole. Which he said at the beginning of this whole documentary that by the end of it, People were going to think he was a huge D-bag. Right. And if you watch something like this, yeah, rightfully so. You, you see that he's treating, mistreating a, a teammate, but, but he's pushing him along. What's crazy is, is what, in my opinion, that Emmy-winning moment, that Oscar-winning moment, that award-winning moment for this documentary, in my opinion— was the montage of Michael explaining why he was the way he was with his teammates. And then at the end of episode eight, where he wins his first championship without his father on Father's Day, uh, and we we get the video footage from that iconic picture of MJ bawling, crying on the floor with the ball and championship hat in the trainer's room in the Bulls locker room. But that montage that we're going to play in a second of Michael explaining why he was the way he was, I really think is what is going to win this documentary all the awards when it, when it comes down to it. When people see this, uh, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Oh, well, that's you because you never wanted anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and be a part of that as well. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break. That moment right there was my favorite part of the documentary so far. Yeah, just of how emotional he got he by was, talking about pushing his teammates. He started to tear up because of how passionate he felt about how passionate he was as a, a leader, as a teammate, as a basketball player, as wanting to be the best. I just I, I thought it was fascinating to hear that that perspective and that vulnerability from Michael Jordan. Yeah, because from again, from an outsider's perspective, you watch all these montages and his interviews and the interviews of the players who were his teammates and you see it as man he was such an a-hole like come on but from his perspective you don't win those six championships without the supporting cast like tyler said that the bulls had some of the best supporting cast on some of these championship teams and he's the one who was the advocate for that he was the one dragging them along even if they didn't want to be to that next level and who knows if those role players could have even gotten to that level without michael pushing them the way he did exactly Tyler, what do you think about all that? Well, I think that the you know I think you're right with the award-winning moment. Um, definitely that clip was it. Uh, but I thought that what what I felt what I felt like when he was saying that I felt like what hit me was that he he uh, I don't think he 
necessarily wanted to be a bad guy, but that was like a uh, a sacrifice that he made. He's like, hey, like, you know, he feels bad. I don't think he necessarily likes the idea of not being well-liked. And so, like, and that was like a sacrifice that he made to be great. And so he hopes that, you know, people appreciate that sacrifice because it was a big one. So ye, this morning at 7.01 a.m., and I, I found it on Twitter, Tim Grover, Michael's famed trainer, and he also trained Kobe and a couple other uh, NBA stars, Tim Grover tweeted this out. For those still questioning MJ's leadership and intensity, the commercial said, quote, be like Mike. It didn't say, quote, like Mike. You don't have to be yeah. liked. You need to be respected. Yeah. So I thought. Yeah, which is everything. That's the entire Jordan, Kobe. Yeah, that's the they, entire mantra. They they wanted to play. It's the same scenario as, oh, he, get, he gets an altercation with Matt Barnes. Matt Barnes goes plays for the Lakers. He yeah, if you're crazy enough to fuck with, with me, you're crazy enough to play he, with me. He gets an altercation with Ronald Tess and Rockets, wins a ring with Rock uh, with Meta the next year. Uh, you know, the, that's like what they respected and what they put to the side because, you know, ultimately Jordan laid the foundation for Kobe, but, you know, ultimately that was the blueprint. Just win at all costs, you know, and I think he was a good leader and well-respected. I don't necessarily think that people dislike him. I don't think that, he, you know, if, I think that's a pretty like shallow perspective at this point. Yeah, I think people understand understand that the uh, that he probably had more feelings that he was letting off, but it was necessary for him to be the way he was. Yeah, because he didn't really have a lot of emotional scenes. I mean, Eric talked about that. How you see his his uh, third championship and him crying on the floor of the, of the locker room. Fourth. That's, oh, wait, no, that was his... That'd be his fourth championship. The, his first one without his dad was... No, no, no. I'm talking about the one he won um, in 93. Oh, no, no. sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, you, you see some of the, the iconic um, emotional pictures and still shots, but this one is on video, and it's him showing just how passionate and how much he really wanted to win, especially after retiring for the first time and then coming back. Right, and him winning his first championship without his father on Father's Day. Yeah, see that. See that's another emotional moment. It's a, you don't really get a lot of those from him. Well, but you get him, you know, and that shows that he is he isn't just this tyrant. Yeah, he's human. That, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That was just his leadership style. But I also thought that you know, speaking of like kind of Oscar Emmy type moments, Tim Grover to me had had the other one. And oh was, yeah, that was a great great clip well and it was great like you know shout out the filmmaking the editor i think the editor killed it because he said you know after they lost orlando you know when do you want you know let just let me know when you want to meet up and he said let's meet up tomorrow and they stuck on the dude's face you know he didn't have to say anything else more than that you could see in that guy's face that he was like about to break down crying almost like he was so emotionally like built up from like you know, just basically kind of inspired through Jordan's actions. That's another one of those moments throughout the documentary that was like that would that would hit you in the gut, you know, when he says, "I'll see you tomorrow." Like just that simple and go to Jordan, and the trainer's reaction was amazing. Yeah, I definitely could tell that Tim Grover was on the verge of tears in that in that moment too, and he was 
basically just getting, he was getting ready to leave town. The season was over. He was ready to, to take some time off. But Jordan was like, nope, see you right back here again tomorrow. Yeah, not so and fast, then, and he had and, to return to work. And then, and then right following that, he says, and then he says, you know, I have an obligation that if someone sits down for three hours to watch me play, that I give him his very best. And that was, like, the other part of, you know, you could see him, like, breaking down. Like, he's so emotionally just, like, saying this because it was just, like, so inspiring. That's the kind of shit, like, just those couple sentences from Tim Grover makes you want to go fucking work out. Totally. Or, or it makes you want to, like, be better. It's just crazy, do something you know? productive. It, there, it was definitely, like, a really inspiring moment in the in the documentary. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's all the the moments I had written down for episodes seven and eight. I don't know if you guys had any other moments you guys wanted to talk about I, that I didn't mention. No, but I am sad, though, that the last two are this Sunday. Yeah, we got we and, only got two uh, more episodes. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly going to rewatch them again, though, just so I can get the full effect one more time. Yeah, the binge watch. Exactly, yeah. Once once they're all stacked up, you know, and ready to go. But, I, yeah, I am sad that they're, uh, the last two are this Sunday and we're not going to get any more uh, daily or weekly doses of the last dance. I'm excited for what's next. There's going to be another dope, you know. Well, Eric mentioned that early in May they were filming the last two, right, with Stockton. Well, they were, yeah, they, they, were, they, yeah, they, they were, were finishing the interviews with him. No, 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 I meant a new, a new doc, like, what's, what's the next documentary? Well, oh, the, the, yeah. next, the next documentary that ESPN has lined up is the Sammy Magic. Sosa, Mark McGuire. Okay, well, that's baseball. <laughs> hey, but, right now right, I'll so, take anything. Golf? The only, thing, the only thing that I had written down that we snuck past during the Space Jam runs was I thought it was interesting that Rodman was there, and and then he plays for the Bulls after that. So Oh, yeah, because he wasn't that, even on the Bulls at the time. Yeah, so maybe that sparked uh, enough confidence in Mike for him to feel comfortable with the Bulls thing. I think that definitely had something to do with it because I also saw in one of the clips from one of the Jordan runs that Horace Grant was at the Jordan Dome, and that was obviously the missing piece from the Bulls in the time that uh, Jordan had left the Bulls was they were missing that power forward. Obviously they were missing Michael too, but they were missing that rebounding power forward force that Horace provided for them during the first three championships that then Dennis filled that role in the the next three championships. So that was the only thing I wanted to sneak in there real quick. Okay. All right. Well, uh, do you guys have any shout outs before we get out of here? Uh, I was going to start shouting out good games to watch on YouTube. Uh, I think that YouTube has like a extraordinary library when it comes to like fully full length games. I mean, you know, the tele- televised version of the games. And um, I, I thought of two good ones. Uh, recently, ESPN played game two of the Eastern Conference semifinals in 2001, the Raptors versus Sixers and Iverson versus Vince Carter. Uh, you know, if you didn't get to watch Vince Carter in his prime or Allen Iverson for that matter, this is like the perfect game to watch while they're both kind of, it's, you know, in their prime going head to head and to ultimately get to the, to the finals. So game two, 2001 Eastern conference semifinals, Iverson and Vince, and then also the 98 all-star game, you know, like that's just, that's a great game to watch. That's a popular one right now, and like all the all-star games are on YouTube. Like 
I've seen every All-Star game the last 30 years on YouTube. And so uh, the 98 one is, like, really popular right now because that's the infamous one that Kobe was, you know, the sixth man for the Lakers, but a starter in the All-Star game. MJ was there, you know, almost like a passing the torch scenario. Uh, so those are just two recommendations if you're stuck in quarantine to watch a good point basketball game. Uh, those are my recommendations. All right. Jacob, you got a shout-out before we get out of here? Actually, I do. So today is the 16th anniversary of Mr. 0.4 himself, yes. a.k.a. Derek Fisher. And for those of the haters that say that the clock started after he caught the ball. That's false. That is false. He still hit it either way. Yeah, no, the point, 0.4 shot, it was crazy, crazy time. I don't even think he looked at the rim. He kind of just caught it. And he threw did. It. He chucked it. Yeah. He saw it. As soon as he saw the ball go in, he ran right to the locker room because he knew was, if he could get off that court as quickly as he could, he wasn't coming back out. Yeah. But a shout-out to Derek Fisher, though, for that. Yeah, shout-out to D. Fish. And then I just want to shout-out everyone that wished me a happy birthday on Sunday or that was able to make it to the Zoom party that I had. It meant the world to me to hear from and see so many people virtually on my birthday. It made it feel somewhat normal since I couldn't do a big celebration. But best believe next year when I turn 27 <laughs> and we can actually do something, I'm doing it big for sure. You're going out? Oh, for sure I'm going out next so year. So did the hangover feel normal as well? Oh, my God. It was not okay how hungover I was the next morning after not going to a bar but just drinking in the comfort of my own home. It was not okay. But, all right, with that, that wraps up this episode of the Sports Kingdom Show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you decide to listen to the Sports Kingdom Show so you can stay up to date on the newest episodes of the show. Don't forget to follow at TSK Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow all of us at the Duke of Sports, at Tyler Pacholke, and at Jacob Double underscore Gonzalez. We appreciate you all so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of the TSK Show. Peace.